what a passionate group we are. Um, yes, we are in Galatians chapter 2. Um, Ryan went through it last week. Oh, I always forget it. It's, I even wrote it this week. I saw Frazier's notes at the top. He said, dismiss kids to children's church. I wrote it because I saw Frazier and I still failed to do it. Children, you're dismissed to children's church. Oh, shows you we see what we want to see, right? Even though it's right there in front of me, didn't see it. Um, we're in Galatians. Ryan finished chapter 2, but he covered the earlier part of the passage that I'm going to read, so I'm going to cover a few verses um, that he kind of summarized for sake of time last week, just because they're so important, they're so valuable for us. It was one day in 1677, a young man named Henry Scogel sat down to write a letter of spiritual comfort to a distressed friend. Scogel's life would be tragically cut short one year later as he would die, but his letter was copied, passed around, and soon published. It would live on to this day. About a half century later, two brothers with the last name Wesley, that's John and Charles Wesley, were given Scogel's letter by their mother, Susanna, who had cherished the letters. The brothers, in turn, were so taken by it that they shared it with a friend named George, who upon reading it commented, I, have never know, I, I never knew what true religion was till God sent me that excellent treatise. Yes, George was George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of all time, a catalyst for the Great Awakening. Though he had been in church and practicing Christian for years, Whitfield traced his own conversion back to reading Scogel's letter. And this letter turns on the question that Christians have asked, or people have asked, in every age and every generation, and that is, what is the heart of true Christianity? What are we doing here? What's the heart? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? What's the center of our faith? And so with that introduction, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's Word together, and I want you to think about that question. We will answer it near the end, but I want you to think about that. What is the heart of Christianity? If you gave an answer, what would you say? Here's God's Word from Galatians 2. We're going to read 17 to 21. Paul continues his line of thinking. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What is the heart of true Christianity? We're going to go through a couple of points before we get there. We're going to just walk through the text. There's a few slides on the board to help you. First thing I want you to see in this passage as we get to the answer to that question, I want you to see the danger of grace. The danger of grace, verse 17 and 18. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ... We Jews find ourselves among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be 
lawbreaker. Uh, 1718 is a little hard to translate because, as we said last week, or hard to interpret because Paul is responding to his critics. Often when you read these letters, Paul or whomever's writing, Peter, they may, be, they may be writing, but they have a critic in their mind, in their head, and they're answering that critic, but we don't always know the question. But he's just said in the verses Ryan read last week, He's promoting this idea of grace, free grace, that we are justified, we are made right with God by nothing of our own doing. We can't earn it. We can't do anything to recommend ourselves to God. We can't pull our bootstraps up enough. We can't do anything to make God love and care for us, not our morality, our baptism, our church attendance. In this case, with Paul, not with Jewish law-keeping, Nothing can make us right with God. This radical message of grace is challenged by his critics. It's danger. It's the danger of grace. In verse 17, his critics seem to have said, well, if if it's all of grace, then you're actually discouraging moral accountability, right? You're encouraging people to sin. We call this license, right? Or antinomialism against the law. If it's all grace... I can do what I want. We hear that today. If God justifies bad people, then what's the point of being good, right? We'll just live however we want. God's going to justify us. It doesn't matter how we live. Paul says as emphatically as he can in the Greek, no, absolutely not. God forbid. He pushes on this idea of cheap grace. It's all of grace. It's all of him. But that does not mean we can live however we want. We'll see how in a few minutes. He goes on to deny the allegations that he was guilty of making Christ the agent or the author of sin. On the contrast, he says in verse 18, If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Or if I build what I destroyed, then I make myself a transgressor. What is he saying? In other words... If after my justification by Christ alone, if I'm still a sinner, it's not Christ's fault. You can't blame him. The fault is on my own. It's all of grace. If I continue sin, it's my own fault. You cannot blame Christ. Blame him. It's on me. Seems to be the charge that he's giving, it seems reasonable to us, to the human mind, to think, well, if it's all grace and you can do what you want, you're not going to impact that. You're not going to change it. And Paul says, no. There's no cheap grace. He refutes it. He refutes the charge of license. It's dangerous. The danger of grace. First point brief. Second point brief. If we can't do whatever we want... What about the law? The law doesn't justify, then what is the point of having the law? What's the point in the Old Testament? What's the point of the laws if it's all about grace? Why don't we have the rules to orient us? It says in verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul's argument to counter the charge of grace meaning you can live however you want, is to really understand the nature of God's law. So I'm going to explain briefly the nature of God's law. Hopefully this makes sense to you. 
We'll see it played out here. When we look at the Bible, there tends to be three ways it talks about the law. The first use of the law is, is the law restrains evil. The law restrains evil. Regardless if you're a Christian or non-Christian, you're the most secular person, when we see the law, it curbs our sin. It curbs our evil. Not too long ago, your pastor got a speeding ticket for driving too fast with my whole family in the car, and I got pulled over, and uh, justifiable, I was speeding, I thought it was a speed trap, and it was, but hey, I got a ticket, and uh, since I've been in the car since, and I go by the air, you know what I do? I slow it down. The law the fr- restrains sin and evil. There's people you might like to murder that you really don't like. But you know, if you were to murder them, there are consequences to that murder, right? Namely, you'll go to jail or worse. And so, it restrains your actions, right? The law restrains for all of us. There's penalty to it, so it restrains evil. The Bible, the law is used that way in the Bible. We're going to skip the second. We're going to look at the third use of the law. Is The first one's for all of culture. The third use is for the Christian. The law teaches us how to live. This is the one John Calvin talked about a lot. It teaches us how to live in righteousness. We often think about the law as a bad thing. Well, how, if the law is a bad thing, how can David say, I love your law, O oh God. I meditate on your law day and night. The law for the believer teaches us how to live. So often culturally today, you'll hear things like uh, love wins. Or it's a big umbrella of love, this idea of the way we're to live. But the law teaches us particular ways to love and how to love and whom to love and which ways honor God with our love. The law directs us and guides us. The word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. The law guides us. Sorry if my voice is hard to understand. It doesn't hurt. I just can't talk very well. <clears throat> the law, sec, the third use, the law teaches us how to live. But arguably, the most important use of the law in Scripture is the second use of the law, the primary use, and that is the law does what? It takes us to Christ. The law is our tutor. It drives us to Jesus. We see this here is what he says. For through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. I tried to keep the law. and trying to keep the law. I came that I couldn't keep the law so that I came to Christ. He'll say it later in Galatians 3, next chapter 24. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, our educator, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law took us by its hand and took us to the nth degree and we saw we couldn't keep it and we were desperate. And we saw there was one that had to keep it for us. It was Jesus. Through the law, I died to the law. When I follow the law, it shows my inability to keep it. It shows me that as hard as I want, I cannot keep the law, but I only become a law breaker further and further and further. The law is good to restrain evil for the whole culture. For the believer, the law helps us to grow 
and walk in faithfulness. But to become from the non-believer to the believer, we have to see the law takes us to Christ. We hold it up as a mirror, James says, reveals our inadequacies. Um, I remember being a freshman in college, I lived um, in an apartment by, by, the, by the campus, but uh, I was on my own, and I had to do things on my own I had not done, like cook, besides microwave something. I had to do laundry uh, until I went to my mom's. I had to, had to learn how to pay some bills, right? I, I, I was on my own, trying to do it on my own, and very quickly realized this experiment was not going so well. So I ran home to mom and dad and got some tutorials. I got some lessons on doing the basics, right? The law does that in a much fuller way. I eventually, believe it or not, learned to cook a few things. And I can do laundry today. I don't put the breads with the whites anymore. Right? I do some things smarter. The law, we're on our own. We're trying to do it. We're trying to keep it. We're trying to be righteous. We can work as hard as we want. And we'll never get to the place where we can keep it. We'll never get to the place where we can say we're righteous in ourselves, what we've done. But we apply the law, and we see it as Fraser did, as we confessed it, we bring the law of God before us, and we realize, oh, we are great sinners. And what should our response be? We run to Christ. We run to him again and again and again as lawbreakers and find life in him. It never gets us to God. The purpose of the law is to show us our need of Christ and to take us to Christ. So, we aren't free to live however we want by grace. Grace doesn't get us off the hook. But by living in obedience, we're never going to actually get to the righteousness we need. So we can't do what we want, but we can't live righteously enough to get to God. So how does this work? Law and grace. How do they fit together? The law matters, but salvation is not by the law. The third point, and our longest point here, is it's the glory of union with Christ. Union with Christ. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Before we get to the, the phrase, union with Christ, look what he says in verse 21. We're going to work backwards. He doubles down on what I just said. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It can't be the law. We don't want to say Christ died for nothing, right? Because we're trying on our own works. Christ did the work. No, we're going to do the work ourselves. It would nullify, it would cancel what Christ has done. No, it is by grace. It is all of grace. As a Christian, our hope is in the death and the resurrection of Christ. We would never want to diminish that. And as soon as we put it on ourselves, as soon as we use badges to separate us from other Christians, well, we're the Christians with the really good theology. Or we're the Christians that have the experience of the Holy Spirit. We, we do things a little better. Or we're the Christians that do missions really, really well. Or we do, we do this really well. We're, we're, we're more contemplative. We're, we're more of the heart. We're more, we do these little badges to separate us, to add to grace. We've nullified, we've canceled 
The death of Christ. Christ died for nothing. Paul doubles down. It's grace. It's only grace. It's nothing we've done. So what is the key to understanding all of this? It is that phrase, union with Christ. Some of you may be unfamiliar with that. Some of you may not hear that term, that phrase. It is the, we talk about justification or sanctification or adoption or salvation. And union with Christ is the, is the umbrella term that is really the center or it is the whole, the peace that holds everything together. It is the heart of the faith. John Owen says this, Union with Christ is the greatest, most honorable, and glorious of all the graces that we are made partakers of. The writer B.F. Westcott says says this, If once we realize what these words, we are in Christ, mean, we shall know that beneath the surface of life lies depth which we cannot fathom, full life of mystery and hope. Sounds good. So what is it? What is union with Christ? Union with Christ is the inseparable nature of Christ in us. Scogel in that letter that impacted Wesley, the Wesley brothers, impacted George Whitfield, that impacts people today. This is what his answer was. What is the heart of true Christianity? Scogel's answer was that true Christianity consists not in the trappings of religion, not in going to church or in saying of prayers, not in the making of orthodox affirmations or any external form. Rather, Scogel wrote, true Christianity consists in a union of the soul with God, a real participation in the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us a divine life. His letter has come to be called, and the title says it all, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. It is Christ in us, us in Christ, united with Him. If you're in the ocean, uh, maybe you've been on a cruise, and you, you're in the Gulf, and you, you go out deep. At some point, the Gulf of Mexico becomes the Atlantic Ocean, right? I mean, at some point, it's the Atlantic and the Gulf. We just use it on a map for... But they come together. But when do you know when you're in the Atlantic and when do you know when you're in the Gulf, right? Or when does the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, when do they merge? They just somewhere they do, right? They're inseparable. That's what union with Christ is. It's inseparable. He is in us. We are in Him. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. The life I now live. Wait, we're dead. We're alive. Christ lives in us. What's happening? The union with Christ is the lost doctrine in an increasing, increasingly selfish and selfie world. Uh, Rankin Wilborn, in his book entitled Union with Christ, he speaks about the selfish nature of culture today. Going back on a few years, he says, Use the illustration of how self-centered we are. In 2006, thousands of American college students filled out a survey. This has been done for, for generations, or for centuries. 
They weren't told what it was, but it was actually the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, the NPI. A, psych- a psychological evaluation that asked for responses to statements such as, I am an extraordinary person. I am more capable than other people. Everybody likes to hear my stories. And if I ruled the world, it would be a better place. The NPI has been given to college students for several decades. By looking at the change in responses over time, a recent study shows a 30% increase in narcissism over the last 30 years. Even more striking, in 1950s, 12% of teens agreed with the statement, I am an important person. 12%, 1950s. In the 1980s, just 30 years later, 80% of teens agreed with that statement. By our own reckoning, we live in increasingly self-centered world. Did you hear that? Not like, does your mom and dad think you're important? That's not the question. It's like, do you think, as an 18-year-old in college, you are an important person in this world? Like, you're, the world is so glad we have you, 1950s, 12%. 2006, 80%. We think so highly of ourselves. But to be in union with Christ, to understand all of grace... To understand it's his work, not ours, we've got to understand these words. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I no longer live. Self is dead. Or as Jesus would say, if you would follow me, Christian, not follow me because you're so great and wonderful and awesome and I'm... I'm so thankful that you're here. If you would follow me, you would deny yourself. You would take up your cross, that instrument of crucifixion and death, and you would follow me. Union with Christ is the end of self. And so self is gone. So on the throne of your life, there's a vacancy. There's no one to rule it. Self's dead. I've been crucified with Christ. What happens? He says in the next verse, the life I now live. I thought we were dead. Now how are we alive? Because someone else. Something else has taken the throne. Self is dead. It's been overthrown. And now Christ comes to live on the throne of our life. To guide, to lead, to give us hope. Self is dead. Christ lives in me. Now he says, now the life I live. The life I now live. Are we dead or are we alive? Yes, we are. We're dead to self. We're dead to sin. We're dead to the old man. We're dead to sin. Well, if it's grace, I can live however I want to live. We're dead to that. We're alive to Christ who lives with us by the Holy Spirit in us, empowering us. The one that says who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ's death is our death. Christ's life is our life. His resurrection is our resurrection. Christ is alive in me. It's too good to be true. It's union with Christ. I want you to understand this principle. Uh, This is all throughout Scripture. We see it in the Old Testament, this idea of, of union with God, that the highest end for us is that we are in union, communion with God. You know the story of, uh, there's a lot of places we can go to. You know the story of David and Goliath, right? It's a pretty, pretty well-known one. There's David and Goliath, and um, 
you know, you've heard this from, from years. You've heard it from teachers and preachers and grandparents and coaches. God bless our coaches. They've used this one enough in, in motivational speech. You know, face your Goliaths. Face the giants. Even in their movie, Facing the Giants. You know, face the giants in your life. Um, and that's probably well intended. It's just missed the whole point of the story of David and Goliath. The point points us to this union. Do you know that there's, a whole, there's two armies arrayed in battle on the sidelines? And Goliath is there. And what does Goliath do? Goliath represents the Philistines. If Goliath wins, they all win. If Goliath loses, they all become slaves to the Israelites. The Israelites are afraid. They're scared to death of Goliath. But they have this little shepherd boy, David. And all of their hope all of their life, their whole, everything, life and death is in this little boy with a slingshot. If he wins, they win. If he dies, they die. Selfishly, we read ourselves into the story, don't we? First of all, the story's not about us, so don't face your giants. Second of all, if we're in the story, you're not David. We're on the sidelines, afraid, scared to death. He's a giant. He's bigger than us. We can't defeat him. But all of our hope for Israel is in David, and all of our hope is where? It's in Christ. As Christ goes, we go. As he died, we die. As he's buried, we're buried. As he defeats sin, we defeat sin. As he's resurrected and alive, we're alive. Colossians says that right now, in this moment, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. I thought we're here in Mobile. We're here, and yet we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We're in Christ. When God says, this is my beloved son to Jesus, he says it to us because we're in Christ. We are in him and he is in us. That's why we were in Adam. We fell in Adam. Israel's hope was in David. Our hope, our security, our satisfaction, our salvation, our eternal life is in son, in Jesus, union with Christ. It's not just representation. It's actually indwelling. He lives within us. The greater David, Jesus, inhabits us by the Holy Spirit. His victory is our victory. Is that good news? I hope that's good news. That, that, that puts context to everything we experience, to all of our struggle, to all of our difficulty. We're in Christ, and he's in us. And this gets us back to the first question. What do we do with the law? What do we do with the law? Are we free to live however we want? Did you hear what I just said? Christ lives within us. Well, it's all grace. I can live how I want. Christ lives within us. He's a part of us. Inseparable. You can't distinguish us and Christ. Is it better Christ? They're together. I'm covered, I'm hidden. All the language Paul uses it over and over. Do a study. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's who we are. It's our core. It's not, my identity's not my color, my gender, my background, where I'm, it's in Christ. It's in Christ. Corinthians says, would we talk about sexual sin? Will we take Christ and partner with a prostitute? I thought it was just me. No, Christ is in me. So if I'm engaged in sin, then Christ is engaged in that with me. So of course not. 
But also, it's not only we're in Christ, or not only is Christ in us, but we are in Christ. Which means the striving's over. The, the law has merit again. The, the law has help again. The third use of the law. We, we can now seek to follow God's law and honor God's law, but not to earn it, not to strive. Christ lives in us. We are in him. He is in us. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to do. Use the law. Use God's word to guide us. I don't know what to do in this situation. What does the scripture say? I better get this right so God's not mad at me. God's already pleased. You're in Christ. Guide me. Direct me. Give me wisdom. Give me hope. Give us joy. We obey because Christ is in us and we are him. Union with Christ. There is nothing greater. It finishes with this. So I live by faith in the Son of God. We live by faith in union with Christ. How do we apply this? How does this get tangibly done? By faith. Faith reminds us that we are connected to the grace of God, that he lives in us and we live in him. And that is our hope. The heart of Christianity. Tell your friends. Explain the gospel to me. I got three words. Union with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to reflect on your word. Thank you that you use it so powerfully in our own hearts. May we meditate on it. May we, may we draw near to it. May we know it. May we sing about it. Even now as we come to the Lord's Sacred, may we taste and see the goodness of God. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come weekly, we come to the Lord's Supper. We celebrate. We've heard the word preached, and now we get to see the word as we partake of this meal together. G.K. Chesterton, as he talks about this idea of union and communion, he uses this phrase, or Rankin Wilborn uses this phrase when he's talking about Chesterton. Chesterton, in, in his book, The Ethics of Elfland, sounds good, right? Some of you might enjoy that. He says this, speaking about childhood. He says, the only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature, that's the creation, are the terms used in fairy books. Charm, spell, enchantment. I left the fairy tales lying on the floor of the nursery, and I've not found any book so sensible since. It's taken me a long time to, found out, to find out that the modern world is wrong and my nurse was right. This world is a wild and startling place. It's enchanted. It's mysterious. Rankin makes the connection that this concept of union with Christ is the wildest of doctrines. It's so bizarre. I try to explain it. I said lots of words. We're still. What is it, Christ? Enough? It's, it's overwhelming. It's startling. It's phenomenal. It's indescribable, and yet it's true. It's our soul in communion with God, the eternal God, the God that spoke the world, the God that sent his son, the God that saves us. We have access. We have relationship with him. We get to be partakers of life with Christ. Man, I hope that sinks in. 
The death of Christ was not for nothing. His death was not in vain. It accomplished the grace of God that we need. It was the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread. And after giving thanks, he, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which has been given for you. Likewise, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood that has been poured out for the forgiveness of sins. His blood shed for us. This table is not for those of Christ Redeemer. This is for all those who say, I'm a mess, uh, but I know I'm in Christ. I know I've given. I know I've trusted. I, I know I've been renamed. I know my identity is not in what I do. It's in what Christ has done. If you can say that, then this meal is for you tonight. Please come and partake together with us. If you'd rather take in your seat, we still have these in the back. You can take in your seat at your own leisure. If you'd like to come forward, I will not be serving communion. I'll be sitting over here, but we'll have guys up here serving uh, you guys. Come with your family. Come with your friends. Um, Come with, with who you feel comfortable with, and we'll partake together. Let me pray.